Hello, everyone. It's Pastor Devin here, and we have the incredible privilege of doing um, one of the most phenomenal interviews, two of them today, that I feel like I've ever had the privilege of doing. As many of you know, during this 50-day journey we've been on, uh, we've been seeking the Lord about many things, and one of them is injustice in our nation. And just last week, I was with you from this very place. We came live uh, from the Memorial to the Unborn, and through that uh, showing, the Lord has brought about a couple connections that I'm just honored to have. And today I'm with um, an attorney here in our city, Mike Jennings. Many of you may know him, um, but his name is synonymous with adoptions pretty much for the entire state of Tennessee. Um, you know, for, for what I've done for the past 14 years of my life in working in human trafficking, that's kind of where I heard uh, Mike Jennings' name first uh, because I've told you um, just dealing with survivors of human trafficking and survivors of the trauma of rape, that's kind of how I got brought into this fight of, with abortion um, because these young ladies uh, felt like it was their only out and we learned that uh, the, the abortion process actually brought more pain and trauma to them. It wasn't a solution to their problem at all and the young ladies that we've seen choose life, it actually was God's way of bringing a gift to them and healing. And so we always had uh, Mike Jennings in our book of resources um, for when we dealt with girls that way. But I had no idea that his roots to this issue are so much deeper uh, than just being an adoption lawyer. And so just through a random a turn of events this week, I am back at the memorial one week later on our last day together uh, with the privilege of interviewing Mike Jennings and his connection to this place. Uh, because the truth is, he actually plays a strategic role in what's happening in our city and in what happened in this place. So it's going to be a laid-back interview, and I want him just to share all that's in his heart, and I believe it's going to be a life-changing day. So, Mr. Mike Jennings, I would just like you to share with us, just start by letting the ladies know your connection to this place, maybe how you first found out about it and got involved, and then I want you to get into the history of your involvement here, what you saw and witnessed with your own eyes, um, and how this place came to be. Thank you, Devin. Um, the Lord brought my wife and I to Chattanooga in 1984, um, and this facility that we are sitting in now at the time was the Chattanooga Women's Clinic. Uh, it started here in 1975, so it predates my actual appearance in Chattanooga and uh, was opened only two years after the Roe versus Wade decision legalized wow. abortion in the land. Uh, and this clinic operated pretty unimpeded for 10 years, and uh, uh, there was about 3,000 abortions a year in this facility in which we are sitting right now. Uh, in 1985, Christians in Chattanooga uh, began to get involved, and uh, that involvement commenced with um, sidewalk counseling that was trying to intercept women as they came here for appointments. Uh, our crisis pregnancy center, which was known as AAA Women's Services at the time, was formed and rented space directly across the street. And at the time, uh, a free pregnancy test was a big deal. You couldn't get a pregnancy test at Walmart. Uh, and so the free pregnancy tests were across the street. So the counselors would come, they would call in advance to find out when the facility would be open because they kept changing their hours to try to keep people off, uh, off balance. And the sidewalk counselors would intercept uh, the women and asked them if they knew for sure that they were pregnant, would they like some counseling, they could go across the street for the free pregnancy test. And that began um, about an eight-year uh, struggle here on Vance, 
uh, road that has to do with life issues. Wow. Um, so that was in 1985, uh, and that continued for several years. Uh, there was litigation that ensued. There was a white line painted across the parking lot here in front, and uh, the chancellor, our chancellor said that the, the uh, counselors could not cross the white line. Uh, there were people that were arrested in various circumstances, but the arrest became more serious in 1989. And for those of you who have lived long enough, you may remember Operation Rescue. It was a deal uh, in 1989 where people across the country were committed to actually voluntarily being arrested in order to block the operation of a clinic. And um, so that took place here. There were three rescues. Oh, wow. Let me ask you a couple questions about that segment of the story um, because I want you to finish all of this. So just to clarify, I think we were talking about this before. For those of us who weren't around then, we saw the recent movie Unplanned and what you're describing sounds like scenes from that movie. Um, and it, it sounds like a real life uh, you know, battle that took place in our city that many of us saw in that movie. Um, would you just talk about two things that you said, uh, number one, the Christians actually formed a strategy. Like you said, there was an alternative that was rented across the street, which I feel like is very important that they had a, a place women could choose life in the location of where they were coming. I like the idea of the free pregnancy test. They offered a service. Um, but you said that people were counseling out here and praying and even willing to go to jail. Were you one of those people or you just heard about them? I, I was not going to jail. <laughs> I was the one trying to keep them out of jail. Uh, but yeah, the, the thought was when you go to battle, you must be on the battlefield. This was the battlefield. And so we had to rent a place close by. So across the street was the closest we could get. And so we, the battle was joined here at that point wow. in time. Let me ask you one more question about that. When you said the battlefield, I want you to tell the strange fact you told me. I know it's probably not part of the story, but for those of you that are following us, last week... When I filmed here, you know, every episode we've done, there's been something I've worn that's been significant from our crazy T-shirts, obedience over sacrifice. And I want to just quiz you really quick. Do y'all remember what I wore in the video as I stood in that doorway? I wore a red shirt for life that said roar. And then I wore my camo fatigues. And I didn't quite get why I wore them, but I knew I was supposed to. I want you to tell them the strange fact about the, uh, the abortion doctors that worked here. Well, the abortionists came from the Tri-Cities area in Tennessee. It wasn't from Chattanooga. And the reason why the counselors had to call and pretend to make appointments was because they kept moving the hours to uh, keep the protesters off balance. And he would fly in here on a plane, land at the airport around the corner, and he would come in here wearing ar Army camouflage fatigues. And did his procedures wearing his fatigues. And when you had an abortion here, there was no checks, no, no credit cards. It was cash only. Wow. And so he would leave with his cash and get back on his plane and fly back to the Tri-Cities. Wow. So, but um, back to the rescues. Rescue. So there came a point in time when, you know, we realized we can tell you the day and the hour at which children will die here. Wow. So... What are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And so there was, and, and the, the, the believers, I'm not talking about, it wasn't a particular denomination. It was, it was very yeah. ecumenical. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
the the counselors came from all different kinds of denominations it doesn't take uh, much bible knowledge to understand what life is and that we're made in the image of god and that it was important that there be some intervention so a group of believers became convinced and convicted that they were to intervene directly and so in three times beginning in january of 1989 and uh, then in march and then in may uh, on on a particular day the two doors to this facility when the abortionist and his staff arrived to conduct abortions uh, there were dozens of people that were had chained themselves together in front of the doorways and had chained themselves to stones and bricks and to where they could not be moved and and to that point in time and I would get a call. They wouldn't tell me in advance. I had plausible deniability. <laughs> <laughs> so I would get a call that they were out here. And uh, so I came down and I see my friends. They're chained up here and the police are coming. The Chattanooga police, I had never seen it before, but they've got a paddy wagon that's the size of a school bus. <laughs> and so they then have to, uh, they have to take uh, tools and saws and they have to literally cut the chains off because they would ask them to get up and move. They would not move. They had to cut the chains off. They had to drag them to the paddy wagon, take them downstairs to get booked. Well, you can imagine that took a lot of time. So the clinic was closed on those days. And uh, so they all went to jail. Now, the, the legal theory at the time was a doctrine called the necessity defense. So if you are walking down a city sidewalk and you hear the cries of a young child and you look and your neighbor's house is on fire and there's a child on the second floor screaming for help, you, ha you can run onto that, your neighbor's property. You can kick the door in. You can go upstairs and carry the child to safety. You cannot be prosecuted for criminal trespass because of the necessity defense. Your actions were necessary to prevent a greater harm from taking place. Wow. So that was the doctrine, that was the theory. Well, after the third rescue, those who had participated in multiple rescues were tried downtown at, uh, in criminal court on the charges of criminal trespass. And uh, we had briefed the defense extensively and uh, the judge called all the lawyers. They had not one, not two, but three uh, attorneys from the district attorney's office to prosecute these guys for which was a misdemeanor offense, but it was a big deal. It was front page coverage in Chattanooga paper at the time because it was a local story that really was a national story because this was taking place nationally. And uh, the judge called us uh, into chambers prior to the selection of the jury. And he said, look, I've read all your briefs and I understand the arguments. And he said, I'm not gonna allow you to use that necessity defense. What they are doing is they are committing legal abortions. You can't use the defense. Mm -hmm. So we had eight defendants who had been involved in multiple rescues. So we took them into an adjoining courtroom, which was empty. And we said, we don't have a defense. You're all going to jail. Wow. But they did it knowing that this was a consequence. And so we picked a jury, spent a whole day picking a jury, fishing, feeling, trying to ascertain are there believers here that will, you know, hang a jury, that will let our people go. And then on the second day, the clinic put on the clinic manager, and she said that she was asking you to identify these people. Yes. Uh, were they physically there blocking entrance to your building? Yes. Did you ask them to leave? Yes. Did they refuse to leave? Yes. The, those are the, all you got to prove to show criminal trespass. Well, the night before, somebody had been in the dumpster back here and had literally pulled out of the trash a fee schedule 
the fee schedule had prices for abortions based upon gestation. And it listed the price for a second trimester abortion. Well, the significance of that is that the Tennessee Attorney General, we had a state law that said second trimester abortions must be done in a hospital. They cannot be done in an ambulatory surgical oh, treatment no. center, which is what this is. So we, uh, after she testified, we, my partner and I asked to approach the bench. We, we, we had never before, we still practice law together. We had never before, never since done anything in criminal court. I didn't even know where criminal court was. Wow. So, but we asked the judge to approach, and we said, Judge, um, she, she has acknowledged in her testimony that they do second trimester abortions, and we have data that will do document and verify that, and we think you should allow us to use the necessity defense because second trimester abortions cannot be done here. District Attorney said, Judge, the Tennessee Attorney General has ruled that statute to be unconstitutional. They can do second trimester abortions. The judge, he's deceased now, Judge Cox, but he smiled and he leaned back in his chair and he looked at us and he said, I'm going to let the defense in. At that point in time, the District Attorney asked for a recess and that trial never reconvened. Oh, all those people went off, went home. Well, there's more to the story. Are you ready for more? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. So my partner and I wanted to go see Gary Gerbitz. He's the local district attorney. He's the head of the office. And we went into his office and we pressed him that he needed to prosecute the abortionists because they'd now acknowledged that they were doing illegal abortions. Well, Gary Gerbitz called Selma Cash Patey who is also now deceased, but uh, everybody called her Sonny. There was nothing Sonny about her disposition, <laughs> but Gary Garbage said, Sonny, Mike and Hoyt are in my office and they want me to prosecute your doctor for second trimester abortions. What do you think I should do? And she said, oh, Gary, there are murders, rapists, there's all kinds of violent crime in town. She said, don't waste your time on that. This will go up on appeal. And she said, we're going to win. It's going to be overturned. But I'll tell you what, between now and then, you have my word. We'll do no more second trimester ab abortions. Mm -hmm. That was good enough for Gary. It was not good enough for us. They kill people here for a living. Yeah. So w why would we take their word for it that they're going to stop? Right. Time goes by. About six months goes by. And you indicated, and it's true, I do lots of adoptions. I've done thousands of adoptions. It's my thing. And I get a call from a woman who told me that her landlord, her former landlord, had asked her to call me and that she was pregnant and she wanted to talk about doing an adoption. So I started asking her the questions you generally ask, which is, you know, how far along are you? Are you seeing a doctor? Are you on 10 care? Uh, you know, tell me about the biological father and this and that. And uh, somewhere in that conversation, she said, I, I, I wanted to abort my child, but I couldn't. And so I kept asking questions, but then I went back to her comment. And I said, uh, you tried to abort your child? And she says, yes. I said, did you go to the Chattanooga Women's Clinic? And she said, I did. And I said, well, why didn't you get an abortion? And she said, I came in there. I had my money. They did an ultrasound, and they told me I was too far along that they couldn't do a second trimester abortion anymore. 
So it was at that point in time when I realized that, in fact, they weren't doing those late trimester abortions. And it's like God takes the curtain sometimes and pulls it back so you can see. So that young man now is in his late 20s. He has a college degree. He is married. He knows the Lord. And his mother was in this building with her money, and they refused to take it. Let me say something about that. This is so, so powerful. Um, we have a, a live audience here. You can't see them, but I think they would say the same thing. To hear real stories, it makes it real. I think what I want to comment on, based on one of the episodes we did, um, and then I want you to tell us some more stories, if you have them, that you can share, is that you are bringing um, this issue of abortion, uh, the way the church can act, you're bringing a different platform. Prayer is important. It's the primary thing. You know, using our pulpits to promote justice and talk about life, that's important. But you are actually showing legal strategy um, and how the church, in a very educated and skillful way um, can make a difference. And I think that's really important because we talked in an episode um, that Esther, when she intervened for her people, it was more, she prayed. She started with prayer and fasting. But what it ended up being was a legal battle. And that we have to be smarter about our tactics as a church and that it's not just about overturning Roe versus Wade. We believe that's going to happen. But I think from your perspective, I want to hear some feedback um, on other strategic ways legally we can combat abortion until Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, the way the Lord shared it with me was that um, Esther never really overturned that evil law. She just released a new one. Um, and hearing your strategy as a lawyer um, and, and what the Lord showed you to do, do you think there are more things the church can be doing from a legal standpoint, um, even more illegal activity that can be highlighted? Or what are some steps we can take until Roe versus Wade is overturned? Well, relative to the story I just told you about the rescue, I mean, you think about the different people that were involved that played different roles. I mean, there were sidewalk counselors out here that were mothers of young children. Were they going to chain themselves together and, and could they afford to get arrested? They couldn't. They did what they could do. Oh, that's good. Well, um, when I got here for the first rescue, I saw a friend. He's a doctor here in town. I said, Dennis, what are you doing? And he said, I, I have to be here. And I said, Dennis, you may lose your license. And he said, I'm willing to do that. And he reached in his pocket. He gave me his wallet. And he said, take care of my family. Wow. So I think we're all called to different levels of involvement. Mike didn't get arrested. Mike was not involved. Mike played a different role. And in terms of what's happening today, I mean, you know, particularly from a legislative standpoint, you'll see what different states, including Tennessee, are doing about positioning their laws in a way so that should the Lord show his favor and Roe versus Wade be reversed, then it goes back to the states and the states will be prepared and this state would be a state where, you know, we're not going to have abortion on demand. And so those are things that strategically people are planning about and are trying to do. So... Well, I, I want you to tell us more stories now because I think what you showed us, you just told us a story of victory. And I think standing here, when uh, the responses I got from the virtual tour we did and the ladies here can testify, you just break, you cry, you, you look at the 35,000 rocks that are out there, this, um, you watch movies like Unplanned, and it seems like so such an overwhelming issue, you almost want to give up. But what you just told is the story of one life you saved, and I know we're going to get in that in a moment, another story that we're going to interview, but one life you saved that 
that made a difference. Maybe you can tell some other stories like that, uh, that we as a church have to learn to celebrate small victories until we get a big one that you know, every person playing their role, if one life is saved, that's significant. And so maybe you can tell some more stories like that. Well, you know, I think in our faith walk, we're all called to do what the Lord sets in front of us to do, whatever that might be. And some of those are big in the eyes of man, and some of those are small in the eyes of man. I think obedience is is always big in the eyes of God. Um, One of my best stories about this facility is how it was... uh, uh, rescued from an abortion facility into a life-affirming ministry of the National Memorial for the Unborn. Can I tell you that story? Please tell that story. Okay. Well, well, I told you about the, in 85, the Crisis Pregnancy Center was started. It opened up across the street. The sidewalk counseling started in 89 and 90, the rescues and the trials that ensued. Um, then the counseling continued. Federal law changed after 1990 and made it to where you couldn't do the Operation Rescue anymore without losing everything you had. It was no longer a misdemeanor. You were going to the federal penitentiary and you would lose everything that you own. And so strategy changed. So the counseling continued. There was a group of men that would come and pray on the, pray. they'd cross over the white line and they would come pray every Sunday morning. And there were two women that were not medical people, but they owned the building and they contracted with the abortionist. And as they prayed, the men would pray that these women would find Jesus or that he would remove them. One of them contracted fast-moving cancer and died very soon after the prayer started. The second one developed cancer and died as well. And you can draw your own conclusions about that, but they were removed. So it was just the abortionist. And about that time, in late 1992, there was a commercial realtor that owned the building that had leased it to the Chattanooga Women's Clinic since 1975. He had financial difficulties, and he filed for bankruptcy. On his schedules, he listed this property as an asset. And then he entered into a contract with the abortionist to sell the building to the abortionist. Well, the contract in bankruptcy court has to be approved. The sale has to be approved. And to approve the sale, the the bankruptcy court notified all of the commercial realtors, creditors. One of them included like a dentist he owed 100 bucks to. Well, the dentist was a believer. Well, part of, I told you about the sidewalk counseling. We also had uh, several Sundays uh, in those years between 1987 and 1992 where we we would line the streets with thousands of believers Lee Highway, stretching down Brainerd Road with signs that say God loves life, abortion takes life, those type of things. It was called a life chain. There were some that were done nationally. And there was an umbrella organization formed here, talking about strategy, called the Pro-Life Majority Coalition of Chattanooga. We called it PROMAC. Well, PROMAC was an organization that had representatives from every pro-life organization. So the Crisis Pregnancy Center, Bethany Christian Services, uh, the Students for Life at Covenant, at UTC, the, the sidewalk counselors, the life chain people. Everybody had two people on this umbrella organization. It met once a quarter. The dentist called one of those people on a Thursday morning. I'm pretty sure I'm giving you the right date, April 23rd, 1993. Well, the quarterly meeting at PROMAC was scheduled that evening. So this individual came to the meeting and said, you won't believe it, but the, uh, the realtor is 
going to sell the building to the abortionist. $259,000. And so in our discussions, we said, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could buy the building and kick them out? And we all said, oh, yeah, that'd be like really cool. And then this is not a well-heeled organization. The treasurer of the organization knew that we had less than $500. <laughs> So he said, well, it's Thursday. Now, there's two problems. One, we don't have any money. And two, the contract gets approved on Monday. This is Thursday night. The contract gets approved on Monday unless there's a competing and higher bid. So the question is, well, what should we do? And the, the consensus was, well, we should. I mean, there are people in this town, there are believers in this town with a lot of money. Yeah. So we should put the word out. Because if somebody will give us a lot of money, we could buy the building. And so we put the word out. And all of the businessmen with a lot of money said, that's a really bad idea. Because <laughs> they said, they'll just move down the road. That building's not worth a quarter of a million dollars. And your money could be best spent somewhere else. But God had different plans. And it, it, it was unbelievable. It came together. So by Monday morning, my phone, uh, <laughs> my phone was ringing off the hook. I had a yellow notepad, and I kept writing down so-and-so called. You know, their Sunday school class is doing this. Their church is doing this. I talked to Dr. So-and-so. He's good for this. And these were just pledges. This was no money in the bank. These were just pledges. So then by, uh, we contacted a bankruptcy lawyer in town who was friendly, and we just said, look, would you file an objection to the sale before the end of the day on Monday and just tell them that you have a client that's going to submit a higher offer? And then we, that was, there was a hearing on Friday of that week. So our first meeting was on Thursday evening, and there was a hearing eight days later on Friday. And in the meantime, the calls kept coming in. We had a hunch. We had a hunch. And so we hired the lawyer. She filed the objection. We come to court on Friday. Friday morning in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Chattanooga is a regular motion day, which means all the bankruptcy lawyers are in there, and their judges calling and hearing different motions about different bankruptcy cases. Well, this was an unusual motion. And it, when the bid was submitted by the Pro-Life Majority Coalition of Chattanooga to buy the pr property owned and operated by the Chattanooga Women's Clinic, it caught some attention. So I'm sitting on the front row of the spectators. I'm not, I'm not there as a lawyer. I'm just there as the treasurer of PROMAC. And uh, we still are counting our money. And a lawyer who's there comes up and he says, he leans over and he says, Mike, I see what's happening. I'm good for $10,000 if you need it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So we write that down. And uh, the... Um, the bankruptcy, um, the, the realtor who was filing bankruptcy, his lawyer objected, said our offer was made in bad faith. It wasn't real. They put me on the witness stand, had me testify, and they said your motives are not are, are suspect. Isn't it true you just want to put this abortion clinic out of business? And I said, ma'am, we are the pro-life majority coalition of Chattanooga. Yes, we want to put the abortion clinic out of business. But it's not about that. It's about who can pay the most money, and we We've made a bid. Our bid was 264000 His was 259000 And then the abortionist said, I'll bid more. And the judge said, we're going to break for lunch. We're going to come back after lunch. We're going to have an auction in $5,000 increments. In the meantime, the calls are still coming in. Wow. And on my pad of paper, 
I have no money, but I've had people who've told me it totaled up to $301,000. Wow. Well, here's how strategy plays in. We told our lawyer, look, we want them to think we'll, bid, we'll pay a million dollars. So every time he bids five, you immediately bid five more. So the judge started it at 264, and he said, okay, 269. She said 274. He talks to his lawyer back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He says 279. She says 284. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, 289. She says 294. And we know we're done. Because if he says 299, we're done. He stood up. He didn't say a word. He stood up. He turned around in the middle of that auction. He walked out the back of the bankruptcy court, and we never saw him again. Yeah, it is quite a story. And this was back in the day when, you know, you had the three news channels, and they all had their little news channel vans with their satellite dishes. So they're all outside the bankruptcy court, all three of them. And Pat Lindley, a dear friend who was our spokesman and was the head of the Crisis Pregnancy Center at the time, she said, Mike, they're all out there, and they all want to talk. What do I tell them? And I said, you tell them that our God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> I think what's an important part of, of the story that, that Mike just told us was that it was not just getting the heart of God and it was not just having a burden for justice, but it actually required giving from the people um, and that God supplied everything that was needed, but he actually required that. There wasn't profit to put in the pocket or, or anything like that. And I think so many times we get passionate about justice, but we're not passionate enough to actually pull out our wallets. And, and I was just saying, when we were in this fight for human trafficking and have been for so many years. Ladies cry, they feel the passion, but the truth is it takes money uh, to do ministry and money to recover girls. And even in this situation, we see that God actually did require that offering. You know, when David built the temple and Solomon finished that plan, it cost money. And so I just want to say to some watching right now, you may not think that giving is a big deal, but I believe those businessmen that called you and the lawyer that was in the room, they might not have been out here chaining themselves to the fence or doing counseling but their role was just as important. And some of you, God's given you resources for these reasons, to sow for justice. And so I just, I think that's an important strategy we need to note today, and that moving forward um, in this fight, it might cost us. And I think that as much money that has been spent on terminating human life, it might be just that God wants people in this nation to give just as much money to honor it. And so maybe uh, you can even move into how this place was built. This couldn't have come free. <laughs> and, and tell that story. I can tell that story. And, and one a period on the sentence you just made. I mean, the yes, we had $500. And in eight days, we had $301,000. And, and there wasn't, you know, a foundation writing checks. There wasn't any big money. So it's an extraordinary story. And I love to tell the story because to me, you know, how many things in your life you, you tell people God did this and God did that. And they're like, you know, God healed me of cancer. No, he didn't. I mean, you had, it was the chemo, it was the doctors, it was, you know, it, people, our culture will explain God away. Well, explain that. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Wow. So, well, here's what happened. After the building, we, we closed on the building uh, days before the lease expired on the Chenick Women's Clinic. And they never did business again. And they knew they were gone. They left. And... Um, we were real uncertain about what to do with it. 
and uh, but after a lot of thought and prayer concluded that the enemy had vacated the battleground and we were going to possess it and so you know the the Chattanooga uh, the AAA women's services the uh, crisis pregnancy center we re this building was basically shaped like an L it's like two rectangle boxes put together we're sitting in the end of the box that went that way and on the other side of this wall is the crisis pregnancy center the box that went that way so we renovated that box brought them in here and they have occupied it to this day and then the, this is a sister ministry the national memorial for the unborn which was formed to recognize that you know in a sense this is hallowed ground i mean a lot of people died here and just like, you know, if you've been to Washington and you've rubbed your hands on the black granite wall at the Vietnam War Memorial, that gives significance and meaning to the lives of those men and women. And so I think women, and you're going to hear another testimony, but women who have gone through um, uh, the pain and have found healing and have found the Lord on the other side, then they become empowered. But part of that is recognizing the humanity of the child that they aborted. You know, when we came in, so the thought was, let's build this facility out. Let's retain the actual exterior wall here is on the original footers of the building that was torn down. The door that apparently you were in in your camo, that was where the door was. That's where people chained themselves together. That's where the Chattanooga Police Department hauled them away in a paddy wagon the size of a school bus. And the rock is the barren area where the actual procedures took place. And then behind us is a wall where women from all 50 states and from many countries have placed plaques recognizing the humanity of their child. You know, I have two brothers that were lost in childbirth. And I can take you to a cemetery in uh, Jefferson City, Tennessee. And there's headstones. There's a marker. I never knew them. I never met them. And this side of heaven I want. But they were made in the image of God and they have value. And so that's what this wall represents. And so there's a lot of things about the build-out of this place that are pretty special. Um, after the purchase of the clinic, it was a big deal. It made national headlines. And uh, some of us traveled to Colorado Springs to be on Focus on the Family with Dr. Jim Dobson. And uh, so at the time that that broadcast aired, uh, there is, there's, a, there's an acrylic oil painting in this facility of a woman holding a nameless, faceless child, and underneath it, at the bottom of the painting, it says, I will hold you in heaven. Mm -hmm. So when the story broadcast, the artist, who's somewhere from the mid Midwest, was listening to the story on his radio. He said he pulled off the road. He said, I've been a painter all my life. And he said, that was the first time that the Lord gave me an image. He said, in my head, I saw the whole painting. And all I had to do was to paint it. He said, I didn't have to think about it. I painted it. And that came from that broadcast, that painting is hanging here. At the time, this building, this roof leaked like a sieve. And so uh, Larry Burkett, who's with the Lord now, Christian Financial Concepts, he had a show on Christian radio, and he talked about the buyout of the clinic. Well, it aired on a day when the board of directors for the National Memorial, we were down on the Walnut Street Bridge, had a meeting down there, and we were praying about all the things. We, we needed a lot of money to build this out. And you know we're not moneyed people. You remember the story. Still don't have any money. And one of the biggest problems was the roof leaked like a sieve. And so uh, Pat Lindley, who was the executive director of the Crisis Pregnancy Center, comes back to this building after the lunch meeting. The phone is ringing when she walks in the door. 
and uh, somebody said, Pat, it's for you, and there's a voice on the other end, and it's a guy from the Midwest. He said, I just heard a story about the, your building on the Larry Burkett's show, and he said, I just feel like I need to call. I don't have any idea what I can do, but I'm a commercial roofer. <laughs> he sent a crew down here on his own nickel and re-roofed the whole building for free. That happened with the, re the uh, blacktopping and restriping re of the parking lot. When the uh, rocks, the gravel that's here, and the, it's intentionally stark out here where the procedure rooms are, uh, when some of that was purchased, um, uh, it was purchased through uh, Home Depot. And um, the, um, well, let me back up. The Home Depot story has to do with the pavers that are out here. And so the uh, cashier is checking out one of our people who's buying these pavers. They need them for the construction. And he said, man, it's a lot of pavers. What are you doing? And he told him. The guy took off his apron. He took out his wallet. And he said, my girlfriend aborted my child there. He said, I'm paying for this, and I will deliver it myself. The gravel, the stones, the river stones, came in a large dump truck. And the women at the Crisis Practice Center said they came out here when they were being delivered and the truck driver was bawling. And he said, I had no idea where I was going. But she, he said, my girlfriend aborted my child here. And he said, there's a reason why I'm making this delivery. And so those stories repeat over and over and over again. And it's from, it's from I think, a secular movie, but... We kept telling ourselves, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. So, so, and then, you know, and so this place has never been secured. It's never locked. You know, you would think that something would happen to it. But the Lord has seen fit to protect it. Even in the design of it with this wall, where this cross is right here, it's a support beam. They told us you can't move the beam. And we said, well, it's in the way. And then somebody said, let's encase it, let's make it a cross. Because you can't get to the point of healing, which is the wall, unless you go through the cross. So. This is amazing. I just have to breathe for a moment. I know everything has meaning, which shows you that's how God's heart is. Details matter to him. And um, I, I just want to share a story. I think it's really cool. Um, and I shared this in the interview I did, that the, the virtual walkthrough we did. I just didn't realize the significance of it. Um, we have a school of ministry at our church, and we bring those students here regularly. And uh, we pray, and we pray for life over our nation. And we came one night. We were having a night prayer meeting. Uh, some of the people in this room were here. We came one night, late at night, because it's always open. And we came to the gates, and our principal, to my knowledge, who has never said she's seen an angel before, I mean, you just got to know, she's straight down the middle. Um, she walked in, and she gasped, and she said that she saw two angels sitting over the doors of this place, guarding it, guarding it. And so it just shows you um, God's divine hand. I'm going to share a personal story um, that is, is flipping me out because it seems like this is how God deals with this place. So I come here regularly. I feel like it's my second home and has been for about two years. Um, I bring people here all the time. 
And I came this last time, and um, I noticed there were just some weeds in different places. And part of that's just been because of the crisis, the pandemic going on around, and it had to be closed for a, a moment. But the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, Devin, would you do the landscaping at this place? And I thought, yeah, I mean, I can't physically do it. I'm terrible at that. Um, but I had already, I thought in my heart for over a week now, yes, I can fund that, you know. Um, I'll do it myself, we'll get our church, whatever, because it just needs to look beautiful out here. And um, the Kelly, who opened this place for us, um, they were dealing with some sickness in their house, and um, she texts me. I told her, what can I do to help? I did not tell her what the Lord had spoken to me. And she said, you know, we really need some help weeding the garden and doing some things outside. Uh, do you know anybody that could? And I'm like... Yes, I do. And I just thought it was funny that the Lord had already prepared my heart for the need before the ask was even given. And so that just shows you the Lord is a caretaker, but he is a caretaker through us. Like, I don't mean this disrespectfully. Jesus is not going to come off being seated at the right hand of the Father to do the landscaping here. He is going to find one of his children and speak his heart and expect them to obey. And so I say that because I think God cares about the landscaping and he cares about the upkeep. And, you know, I don't, I don't do this as a commercial forgiving, but I have no shame in it. I know what takes place here. I know that money is not pocketed. I've participated in these ceremonies. I've brought women here. They've received healing. You know, God may be speaking to you you to do something. This place should look like the kingdom embassy it is. And that is at the hands of the bride of Christ. And so, you know, you can go to the website of the National Memorial to the Unborn. Um, You can get a hold of me through here. But I think we need to keep this vision alive. I'm an inheritor of land I did not sow. You know, a harvest I did not sow. Mike represents a generation that did this for this city. I represent a generation. I was in my mother's womb at that time. In 1979, I was in my mother's womb. And I think, wow, I thank you. I thank you that you gave me a better Chattanooga. You know, and I I said this last week, we still don't have an abortion clinic in the city. And in the name of Jesus, we won't. Uh, What they did was not a temporary victory. It was a victory for generations to come. And as a recipient of that inheritance, you know, why does inheritance fail from one generation to the next? Two reasons. Either the person giving it didn't train the next generation to take it, or the next generation doesn't value what they They've been given. And if you're my generation and you're a recipient of this in the city, we better value what we've been given. I don't, I don't think God means for the next generation to fight the fight of the former generation. We're supposed to pick up and go for greater victory. I believe if we honor what God has done here, we'll never have to fight this battle again. In fact, I can move on to now getting a place like this in our nation's capital. You know, my vision is even bigger. And so I think we need to just stop and examine our heart and see what can you do, especially if you're a part of Chattanooga, you should invest in the inheritance we've been given. Um, Our city has been marked for life because of what those before us did. And so whether it's landscaping or paying for a brick or or helping supporting the counseling ministry, because women get free counseling here, you should pray about it and you should partner with what happens here. So you may have other details you want to share, another story, please do. Following up on the fact that there isn't a clinic here. Uh, in the uh, physician's lounge at Erlanger, after the clinic closed, uh, sometime after that, there were uh, doctors in there, and there was a conversation overheard between two OBGYNs who are known to have done abortions in their offices, private offices. 
and they were discussing about, you know, maybe there's a market because there's not a clinic here anymore. And uh, one pro-life doctor overheard the conversation, and the other doctor looked at the first doctor, and he said, in this damn town, it's just not worth it. You can't say it much better than that. And I think that's what's so important. What you did here terrified the enemy. It really did in, in, in a physical sense, but in a spiritual layer, it is such a demonstration of the strong arm of the Lord on behalf of injustice. And it's, it, it is, it's just holy ground. And so I just want to thank you, first of all, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. You've made this city better for me and my children. Um, you know, who knows the lives that have been saved because of you um, and those who worked with you. I know you didn't do it alone. Um, you may know a few of those stories. Oh, go ahead. It, it, it was hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. It was hundreds of people. I just seemed to be in the middle of the flow. And so, and, 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 and feel an obligation to communicate the story mm-hmm. because I've told you things that you've never heard. Exactly. How long have you lived in Chattanooga? Yeah, I've lived here. Well, my husband's lived here all his life. I have for how long have we been married? 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this is part of the heritage of our town. And, it, and it, we really tell these stories because the glory belongs to the Lord. Yeah. And so we want to keep reminding ourselves that I mean, he is able. And so what he did here in Chattanooga was significant. And that rock out there says there's a plaque on it. It says it's, a, it's, it's the Ebenezer Rock. You know, recall the story. It's a stone of remembrance. It was placed in the middle of the water where the waters receded so the nation of Israel could come back. It's so that the people would always see the rocks and they would tell the story of what happened here. And so symbolically, we want to keep telling the story of what it is that the Lord did here. I just, I thank you for your obedience, and I believe heaven will record the lives that were saved um, and the women that have been healed by this place, and um, I just think as long as I'm alive in this city, I'm going to be a megaphone on this place. We should never forget, just like he said about the Ebenezer Stone, we should never forget uh, what the Lord has done here. Um, I want to I ask um, Mike to do one more thing that I think is super important, um, and it's this. Um, it's not just enough to point out injustice or just highlight the problem. Um, We also need to be the solution. And there are many things the church can do to help bring life to our nation. Um, And we've talked about some of those strategies today in um, shutting down abortion clinics and educating women and bringing healing where abortion has taken place. But there is a great movement that I believe the church is going to have to embrace um, because I believe the cries of the righteous will bring the over turning of Roe versus Wade in this nation. I absolutely believe my eyes will see it. My children's eyes will see it. We'll see a very different America. But if that happens, um, you know, I want to echo the words of one of our intercessors who said the Lord asked them, will you take the babies if I overturn that verdict? And there has to be a solution because um, I would like to think that every woman will get to keep their child, but that isn't reality. And we have to present a solution that is healing for all. Death is not the solution. Death is never the solution. But is the church going to be the solution? And so uh, Kevin and I have been praying, Father, we don't want to just see abortion end. We want to see the church, the bride of Christ, uh, birth the greatest adoption movement that the nation has ever seen. Uh, We as Christians, we are good about quoting scriptures and wearing our Christian badge. But when it comes to actually living a sacrificial life that prefers others over ourselves, this is where um, we meet the reality of the calling of God. 
God. And I know everyone, I'm not trying to call you to adoption. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But there are many of you that the Lord has been speaking to your heart. You have plenty of love to give, plenty of resources. And uh, maybe the Lord has been pricking your heart about adoption. And since that's your specialty, I thought you could just take a few moments and just pretend you're talking to a group of women that are like, I know nothing about adoption. You know, the Lord is speaking to me. What do I do now? You know, they might not be in your office yet, but what are some practical, um, some practical advice you can give them on discerning if that's right for them? What steps should they take? Help lead us to obey the Lord when he speaks to us. Um, you know, adoption's been around a long time. Uh, adoption's a biblical concept. Uh, we see adoptions in Scripture and uh, the Lord puts families together in different ways. And uh, so adoption is certainly a God-honored way to grow a family. And adoption sometimes is uh, a, a, a blessing on multiple levels. So I tell people uh, I do what I do uh, because usually uh, or commonly I'm working with a woman who's pregnant and desperately wishes she was not. And working with a woman who is not pregnant and is very open to being another mo a mother again or a mother for the first time. So together they kind of address each other's issue. From a pro-life standpoint, I think, though, it's more than just that. I mean, a lot of people will adopt because maybe they can't have children. But I think it's a much bigger issue than that. So there's a lot of women who have children and maybe feel like their quiver is full. Um, and I see a lot of women when you see transition in your family. And so when you have, you know, three little babies in your home, the thought of a fourth child is a little overwhelming. But those three little babies are not babies forever. And so sometimes they grow up. And part of, of uh, living the gospel uh, in a, a coordinated, seamless, united kind of way sometimes is bringing a needed child into your home and letting your children uh, come alongside and, and live the gospel to that child. So uh, in a bigger context, uh, there's 400,000 children in America today that are legally available for adoption, 400,000. Now, those are not newborn infants. Now, many of them are young, and it's because we have lots of problems in our culture today, and, and opiates is a large, has a large, large, lot to do with that. But a lot of men and women with life-controlling addictions have been unable to parent. And so those children then come into the system. And so here in Hamilton County, there are children that are today legally free and available for adoption. Wow. And so those, uh, it is not difficult for me to find someone who will adopt a uh, healthy infant. There's no end of people who will raise their hand for that. But it's a little bit something different altogether. If there are medical issues, if there's drug addiction issues, or the child is older. Mm -hmm. You know, the nine-year-old African-American boy, he may be hard to place because a lot of people in their mind are saying that's not something I'm equipped to do. So, I, you know, people who are considering life, I would encourage them to think bigger, to think, uh, yes, there are these women here who had crisis. These, these are all crisis pregnancies. And these are crisis pregnancies that ended in the termination of a life. And we would like for those crisis pregnancies to be brought to term, for children to be delivered, for children to be adopted into loving homes. But, we, but the bigger issue is what about the kids that are already here? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'd encourage your audience to think about that. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's bigger than just, you know, well, I don't know that we can do that. I don't know we have the capacity to do that. Our house, we don't have an extra bed. We don't have an extra bedroom. Well, you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes, it does take a village. 
I mean, so your church community could support people who do that, could provide interim relief for somebody who has children who are, you know, some of these children with drug issues, they have reactive attachment disorders. I mean, they are hard kids to raise, but they're made in the image of God. You know, what if you gave respite to that family and said, this weekend, drop Johnny off at our place and he can play with my kids and we'll, you, you guys can go somewhere and get some rest. You know, it does take money. It takes, it takes hands. It takes lots of people to make, to, to, to have a pro-life fabric that's complete. No, that's good. No, that's good. Are you good? You're standing up because we need to stop or we're good? Oh, I said it. Oh, you're back. Okay, can I start again? Oh, we can do this. So if you um, have ever felt the Lord prick your heart for adoption, um, I think it's a God-led act that is completely supported by Scripture. And like Mike just said, and I would challenge you uh, to act on that. Maybe take small steps of obedience. You take appointments in your office, right, if you're in our area. If you're watching from another state, you know, find an adoption lawyer near you, someone you can speak to. I think something else that he just brought up is really important. It's the funding of adoption. And this is some of the legal things I would love to see change in our nation, um, you know, uh, adoptions are expensive, and that's probably part of the barrier of why more godly families don't adopt. Um, and I think there are organizations, there are nonprofit organizations um, in our community, I can even list those on this site, uh, that fund families who are adopting. You can actually give to that. Again, money actually is important. And maybe you say, I can't raise another child, but if there's another family willing to, I would love to give. And there are funds out there that are very integratable. They're great uh, organizations that simply give grants to people who are adopting. And I challenge you to do that. Everybody can do something. If you're watching, I promise you there is something you can do. Um, nothing is, is the last thing that I want you to do after seeing this tour and hearing this story. And um, we have to act. And so, I, you know, I'll end with this story. Uh, I was with um, a client for what we do with Zion Project and was in a crisis moment. Um, I had a 10-minute segment that I knew it was going to be life or death, you know, 10 minutes to give the best godly advice I could uh, before um, the choice of abortion would be made. And I will never forget those words ring in my ear all the time. And the young lady said to me, if I choose life and I change my mind, are you going to take my baby? That was, that was the question. And I remember, without hesitation, out of my mouth, I said, yes. <laughs> and then I went home and thought, what did I just do? But it was the Lord really helping me understand, Devin, you got to be more than talk. And if we're going to talk young ladies out of abortion, we're going to have to be prepared to walk them through the process of life. And we're going to have to get our hands dirty in the process. And it was one of the greatest privileges that I ever had to actually be in the delivery room and to see um, a great, beautiful story. So no, I didn't take the child because the mom did, but I had to be willing. And some of us, the Lord is really pricking our heart in, our, in, in that way. He's preparing us to be a real solution um, and to actually be action behind our words. And so we'll just end with this. We just got a couple minutes. I would love you just to say a prayer, just a quick prayer um, over um, really just the ending of abortion, but more importantly, for the spirit of the Lord to speak to people who may need to be in your office. You know, obviously you carry an anointing for adoption. So if you'll just pray that, that's how we'll close. And then we've got another special interview for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity just to recount uh, the story of your story of how you moved in the life of this community at this place in a specific point in time, Father. 
We know that you have delivered many from death uh, because of your church standing up and speaking truth into this community. And Father, we just bring you the glory for what you did here because it is supernatural. And Lord, we look forward to the future and pray, Father, for uh, women in this community and women who maybe are here in this broadcast and other places, families, Father, that are considering, is this something that you would have me to do? And Father, we just pray that you would provide courage uh, Father, that you would provide confirmation through other conversations, uh, confirmation through your word. Uh, Father, that uh, you would provide just anointed conversations and meetings. And Father, that you would take your church to get serious about what it means to be pro-life from, uh, from birth to death. And Lord, in this community where we've seen so many children rescued and in this culture, Father, we just pray that you would continue to move in a way that brings glory to your name and Father brings physical life and ultimately spiritual life to uh, babies that are at risk now because their parents are not committed to a culture of life. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your precious Son who is our Savior, Jesus the Christ.